Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Cannot wait to get this day started. I got a lovely show planned just for you. My call is going to be joining me in just a second. Then we're going to continue our study in the book of John with Dr. Greg Headington. And then hour two is Jeff Verdorn. We're going to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus in the final week. It's going to be wonderful. But to get things started, Mike Hall is a senior advisor for government relations at the Heritage Foundation, and he is Nice enough to uh, sit in today for Rob Bluey. Uh, Mike, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, it's great ha- shoes for me to fill. Oh, it's great having you back. People love uh, Rob, but they love you too. I heard some great comments last time you were on. So thanks for coming back. You know, I'm not the news junkie I once was, so I'm going to have you. I need you to uh, fill me in on some of the things that are going on. What's happening with the Georgia election laws? Right. So major, major victory for uh, voter integrity down in Georgia. I mean, there is so much concern out there that, uh, you know, the rules that were changed in the 2020 election, the left is going to kind of try to formalize those uh, and make it the how we regularly do elections. I think we, there's never been a messier election than 2020 with people voting from home, uh, requesting absentee ballots when they're not really even absent. Uh, political operatives handling the ballots and then turning them in, just a mess all the way around. So uh, our legal team, along with our lobbying action arm at uh, Heritage Action, developed kind of model legislations and things we can do that make sense, that make it harder to cheat but easier to vote, uh, and they turned into legislation. And gratefully, um, the legislation was signed, signed by Governor Kemp, and it was obviously met with – a whole ton of pushback from the left who are calling it racist. Uh, the bill is nothing racist whatsoever. Uh, and threatens of boycotts out, out, out of Georgia, uh, you know, your, your usual celebrity freaks out. All the bill does <laughs> is make it harder to see. Mm-hmm. I mean, so what, what can there be so so much to be upset about? But that tells you all, all you need to know. If they're upset that it's harder to cheat, well, hey, maybe they're cheating. You know, when I heard one of the complaints about the long lines and can you can you be brought water and the lines were so long. And I think go to Seattle. There are seven coffee shops on every block. I mean, can't we figure out a better way to have more voting stations? Yeah, really. Also, there's this thing called a uh, water bottle that people could (laughs) use. I mean, this really is not about water per se. It's about having political actors. Uh, you know, inside the lines and, Mm -hmm. you know, encouraging people how to vote. This isn't about water. Um, You can leave the 150 lines and get a sip. If you are, if you are so parched, Uh, you can pick up a water bottle from somebody over 150 feet away. No one is going to uh, die of dehydration as a result of this. This is just the libs picking an issue that they think sounds, uh, you know, really offensive, but in reality, it's just about keeping political operatives outside of, you know, that sacred space between the ballot box and, and the rest of folks. We don't want, you know, politicians of any stripes in that area. Right. Uh, that you can see the obvious problem with that. So we cleaned that one up. Very happy about it. Yeah. Mike, uh, the last election, did you vote early or did you vote on election day? 
I voted early and in person. Okay, and tell me what that was like. How fast was it for you? Couldn't be easier. Yeah. Could not be easier. I mean, I was in Washington, D.C. I uh, Seeing what goes around or what happened this this country in, in the summer and all the violent rioting, I thought the best decision for me and my family was to, you know, go vote early in D.C. and, and get out of town for right. a little bit because uh, you can't trust the police in D.C., uh, or uh, other large gangs, you know, if they were to get the bad news for them, Trump winning, uh, we could have had a really, really ugly night. So mm-hmm. that was my choice. Yeah, I voted early and in person as well, and I walked into the polling station, and I was the first one to walk up to a desk and get a ballot and go. I think the whole thing took me about eight minutes. Yeah, it's remarkably easy. I mean, we... The, no serious country in the world, you know, would have a vote from your, your couch situation. I mean... We're not asking for too much here. No, I don't think so either. It's an important topic. Right. You can get get out of bed. You know, this isn't, you know, ordering a pizza from your smartphone. This is participation in the greatest uh, democracy in in, in the world, or at least should be. So I think asking asking folks to to take some time to reflect uh, is great because the left hates this because what they want to do is make it so you can obviously do these things from home. So people will go to your homes. Uh, they'll threaten you. We saw this in the last election where there was a lot of mentions of we'll be able to tell how you voted or if you turned up on this day, uh, and that could be a problem for you. Um, you know, they'll have people coming to your doors. They do this with the legal immigrants a lot, like vote, please vote or else I'll get deported and they hand you a know, little sheet and you're in an awkward situation. You just wanted to go away. And so you may sign the sheet. Next thing you know, you voted down down ticket, those sorts mm-hmm. of things. Sure. Uh, just not a, a serious way to, to run an election. Everybody knows that. Voter ID is extremely popular, and, and it's even more popular amongst black people uh, than you'd think. It, it's way in the plus there. There's nothing racist about this stuff. It's just how you seriously would, would run an election. I mean, mm-hmm. it's crazy. Do you have to get a? Do you have to have a, a valid ID to get a, a vaccine shot? Uh, that's a good question. I I, uh, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. I, I would bet you do, but I'm not sure. In, in a lot of these cities, like D.C., where I used to live, everywhere I wish they could do away with the ID requirement, they would. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if some some states and cities, they didn't, you know, make a show on. But if you're going to start giving out these vaccine passports, I would think. Yeah, you'd have to have something. All right, uh, Mike, let's talk about the filibuster, because this is a big one. Yeah, it looks like uh, Joe has swung the door wide open here. Um I mean, I think gone are the days of we're going to try to work in a unified, you know, bipartisan way, because um, he's already talking about the filibuster reform, something he said he wasn't interested in doing. But he convened this team of, of like-minded scholars who basically, you know, gave him the cover to say, all right, I'm open for doing it. The the, the first step would be uh, making it, adjusting the filibuster so someone had to, like, stand on the floor of the Senate while they're actually holding something up. Okay, but we all know that 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 half measure is not going to make the left happy. What they're looking for, you know, is the situation will be such that there's a major piece of legislation. I I personally think it'll be guns related uh, or climate related. Things that they think, you know, are are near and dear to their cause and pull at the right levels. And when that gets blocked, the, uh, uh, you know, Senate won't pass it. That's when they look to strike. I I think they they try this big election, you know, these big bills. And hell, they, they might vote, do it for the voting rights bill, you know, the the bill, H.R. 1, that would do away with all voter integrity. And, you know, I think they'll wait till they hit the wall, and, and then that's when the filibuster goes. And they'll say it's a, just, it's a justified act because your voting rights stuff is so racist, 
and we've already said the filibuster is racist. So we, it's a moral one for us to get rid of these racist instruments to prevent, you know, uh, legislation that affects racist content coming forth. Uh, that's how we're reading it at the Heron Sunday. Obviously, uh, ending the filibuster would be one of the worst destabilizing moves to this country. Uh, deep down, I hope Joe Biden knows that. I think he probably does. The question is, does he have the courage to stick up to those in his own camp? Uh, I do need to start talking about when when the Senate and starts adding states, packing the court, uh, you know, after ending the filibuster, uh, all these sorts of things, mass amnesties for illegal aliens, they're going to have a real crisis of legitimacy in this government. A lot of people are going to say, I'm not, this, this isn't my country. Like, this is not what we do. This is not one party unified rule. The states made an agreement that we basically live in, in this one union, but we have these rights reserved to us on the smaller level, and the federal government would handle these other things. Now you've just permanently rigged the game and turned the, the federal government into controlling everything. So you're, it's a crisis of legitimacy. I, I, I'm not saying like secession is going to happen, but I'm saying like instances in which states and the federal, uh, there will be, you know, sort of a lot of conflict there. A lot of, well, we're not doing that. Make us do that. Mm-hmm. Get out of here. It's that kind of stuff. It's just like, it, it's, you think at a time where we look at the cultural disunity in this country, right? Imagine what man who is interested in, in the well-being of this country wants to then go on top of that and just add in the absolute most politically divisive thing you can possibly imagine, just dividing the country and leaving one side out in the cold. Yeah, yeah, good point. All right, uh, Mike, let's talk about the uh, crisis at the border and what is your take on how it's being covered? Yeah, well, I mean, the... The media is forced to, to talk about it now, which is, you know, more than we can expect of, of our, you know, not so great media in this country. So I'll give them a couple, you know, points there. But obviously they're phrasing it in a very, in a way that's not really uh, accurate and it is good for the political framing of Biden. What I mean by that is they're out there on a mission to convince everyone that these are little kids coming to the border and that's the nature of the crisis. It's not true at all. The under-18s uh, that are coming are – Mostly, I would say 75 percent, 15, 16, 17. So these are workers coming, uh, many with gang ties. Uh, they also like to – the media also likes to say that, like, these folks are escaping horrific conditions, and that's the only reasons that they're coming. That's not true at all. Uh, they're coming for economic reasons. It's because they can make more money in in the U.S. And by, by having these sorts of reception centers that the Homeland Security Department had set up at the border – what they're really doing, and this one, this one absolutely kills me, is the USA is acting as the final uh, stage in a human trafficking network. Because if you're a smuggler and the Biden administration says, hey, we sent this welcome center. We're taking you know, anyone under the age of 18. What do you do if you're a smuggler? You go out, you recruit all your function energies on under 18. And then you just take them to the center, cash your check, drop them off in the U.S. government. Uh, that is that's the U.S. government engaging in child trafficking. It's 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 truly ridiculous. It's, no serious country should run an immigration system this way. There is a legal way for these people to come to the country. They can apply in their home country. Okay, most of those who even get uh, the claim of asylum, which is where we basically treat them like a refugee, when that claim is heard, it's it's found out that it's nowhere close to applying. Like the, the asylum route to the U.S. is a very discreet discreet thing. It's for like a political prisoner, you know, some like somebody's been politically cast away and like can't like walk around the town freely or, you know, 
suffering like religious persecution. These laws are developed, you know, post-Holocaust with like that in mind. Mm-hmm. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people who are just frankly not making enough money in their home country. And I'll tell you how this makes it all worse too. When you take away the prime working age males and females from the country, the young, the energy, the the entrepreneurial, the home country is not going to get any better. There can there won't be businesses built in Honduras, Guatemala. They're just we're just going to be using them as indentured servants here in America, and the home countries get worse. It's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing humane about this. Let me take, yeah, let me take a little break. Mike Howell is my guest, Senior Advisor on Government Relations over at the Heritage Foundation. Nice enough to be sitting in for Rob Louie today. We'll be uh, right back. with Mike Hull, Senior Advisor of Government Relations over at the Heritage Foundation, sitting in today for Rob Bluey. Hey, Mike, I'm just going to ask you to be super steady with that phone because we're having a little bit of a connection issue, and I want to make sure all my listeners can hear you. Yeah, sir. Yeah, so thank you so much. Let's uh, um, talk about the mask mandates. What do you think about that? Look, I mean, so much misinformation and, and conflicting guidance coming out of, of so many places. It's hard to keep up with. I, <laughs> I, I looked at Joe Biden the other day. He had two masks on after he's been vaccinated. I think that's doing some of the biggest damage to uh, the whole get vaccinated movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, obviously, mask wearing has taken on a... Uh, political significance and virtue signaling significance well beyond public safety. Uh, and that's where I basically see the, the gist of this. I, I think the left's going to have a hard time letting go of these masks uh, because it's honestly for them, a lot easier to point at those dumb, you know, Republicans and stuff that don't wear masks. And so I think we're going to see a seesaw of these mask wearing mask not. And I mean, you know, should you wear it after you get vaccinated? Should you not? But honestly, if you're trying to convince me as a human being to get a vax and the president's wearing two masks after he's been vaxxed, I don't know what the big hurry is. I'm thinking about some of those nice N95 masks. Why wouldn't President Biden just wear one of those? Yeah, I I don't know. I think if he had a fancy mask, people would uh, think he was being too fanciful. Got to be a man of the people. He's a politician, you know, from Scranton at the end of the day. Uh, (laughs) So I'm sure he has the option of every every mask in the world. And he he chooses the ones that I I think connect with the people the best. That's that's how I view that. Yeah. I mean, I would just like him to obey his own mask rules like this. This this is a president who in the first day in office, put out an executive order that said, hey, you got to wear a mask at all times on federal property. I see him without a mask on all times there, you know, mm-hmm. whether he's taking off for a speech or whether he's walking away or doing something. It's just like enforce the rules that you're putting on the other people. You should be in mask jail, really. No, it's I know that the administration wants to be super transparent. That's one of their objectives. But when, when he uh, stumbled going up the steps of Air Force One and somebody asked if if he was seen by a doctor, and Jen Psaki said, no, he's fine. So I really didn't answer the question, but I think to myself, a physician travels with him. He's with him all the, you know, the time when he's on the road traveling. 
and he has a tumble, I would think that the doctor would have said, well, of course I'm going to check him out. He's the president of the United States. I'm his traveling physician. Of course I'm going to check him out. Why was there secrecy on that? I mean, look, the the word is out. Joe Biden is old. He's he lost his fastball for sure. And so I think for them, they got to protect against that. So having a physician see an energy injury makes it a real thing, you know. So just pretend it never happened and moved on. But let's just compare this to the Trump administration. Remember when he uh, was walking fully down a wet ramp and people were talking about using the 25th Amendment because he wasn't mm-hmm. all there? Yeah. I mean, they talked about using the 25th Amendment for four years on, on you know President Trump. I don't know if it's Republicans are just kinder than that, but to me, it's, it's very obvious that Joe Biden has a lot of difficulties in, in basically – doing the bare minimums as a president from a physical standpoint. Uh, that press conference was an absolute joke where he's reading from, you know, his color-coded handbook uh, and being asked softball pre-prepared questions. Uh, it's just such night and day versus the Trump administration where Donald Trump would talk for hours, you know, with reporters and then uh, into the night on Twitter. You, you, There was never any confusion as to what Donald Trump was thinking. He let it all out there. You knew what you were getting. Here we're getting a a staff-driven administration. I mean, historically, this reminds me a little bit of the Woodrow Wilson administration, where you know the the president was very sick towards the end, and and others took charge. Uh, I think we're seeing a very outsized kind of few individuals inside the White House that are pushing a lot of this stuff, Uh, and you see that with the border. I mean, Joe Biden, who created the Biden border crisis, doesn't even want to fix it. He just lopped it off on Kamala Harris's desk, Uh, who also has no plans to fix it, to no one's surprise. But that's the mark of a man who doesn't have the energy to get the job done. You know, that requires traveling and going down there and, you know, being out of your protective bubble. Uh, you know, in other words, doing presidential things. Mm-hmm. What's going on with the military and the critical race theory stuff? Yeah, so this stuff keeps popping up all the time. I mean, whether the Navy is a good test course here, they're basically making all their sailors read books. Uh, you know, you got some books you'd expect, like books about submarines, books about naval war history, you know, things that Navy sailors should read. But then interspersed, you have all these crazy left-wing critical race theories, you know, like how to be anti-racist and, you know, like things about white privilege. Uh, it basically is trying to, you know, push the, – the military is often used as one of the first laboratories for social engineering. So whether that's, you know, even in, in some of the gay marriage debates in terms of, you know, don't ask, don't tell, or even integration, um, you know, the people go to the military first to kind of try some some objectives out before they become widely uh, adopted in society. So I think that's what we're seeing here now is, uh, you know, what's the mass use of critical race theory going to look like? And so they do it by these these reading lists, but also these, you know, just seminars that they make you sit you through that are just absurd, where you're apologizing for your whiteness and just, you know, nothing combat-related whatsoever. Um, people are speaking up. It obviously does not make our country any safer. It only makes for a more divided, uh, you know, fighting force. Uh, and it's just ridiculous. I mean, the fact that we're talking about, you know, maternity flight suits and combat now instead of the growing threat from from china and others it just shows that we are not a serious country when it comes to confronting threats we'd rather just you know apply these absurd woke social fights wherever we can what do you uh what are your observations on 
getting the kids back in school? Look, there's no reason kids should not be in school. That is a parental decision. If a parent is so worried about uh, coronavirus and wants to hold them back, there should be an option for them to have their kid basically tune in electronically. But the the teachers' unions have been the biggest enemy to reopening uh, in America. Nothing would get us on the road to reopening and getting our kids back in school faster. Uh, It is disgusting to go out and see these teachers uh, on spring break and, you know, on vacation and living their best life while still getting paid and, and getting paid more because they go out and tutor and get extra income. They're living the times of their lives. This is not about safety. This is about income and freedom for them. This is just protecting teachers at the expense of our children. And, and we should recognize this trend across the board. That's what teachers unions do. They are not student unions. They are not parents unions. They are teachers unions sent there to basically get the best kind of benefits, time off, et cetera. Uh, the amount of times that uh, – and, and then our country goes around and, and, and applauds these people like they're absolute heroes uh, when they're the ones you know, turning around and, and, and pushing us back. It, it's just terrible. I, I hope that enough in the country have come to this realization about the facts regarding teachers' unions. But uh, they're still playing Lucy with the football. I mean, even after the vax, they're saying I won't go. Mm-hmm. Or only go in these sorts of, you know, circumstances. Uh, they just don't want to work. That, that's, the, that's the frank of it. The, the teachers just do not want to work. Mm-hmm. Just uh, about two minutes left, Mike. I'd love for you to comment on Mohammed Anwar, the 66-year-old Uber driver that was uh, killed in the carjacking. Yeah, how awful was that? That is right the, where I used to live in D.C. I'm not surprised at all that this happened, by the way. That's one it of the worst disgusting. things I've ever seen. Yes, it is disgusting. It is in, inhumane. It is, it is the most primal, terrible thing. But it, it, is, it is not a couple of things. It is not surprising. It is not shocking. And it is not that way because this is what D.C. is now. D.C. Is, has a youth gang and danger problem. I mean, not all of these are gangs. Gangs. The youth in D.C. walking around, it's like walking around in a powder cake just waiting to go off. You have adversarial groups just, you know, parading around very loud. There's open drug use wherever you go. There is screaming, chasing, running across the street, uh, you know, panhandling, harassment. These things turn into carjackings all the time. This is what happens when the mayor, Mayor Bowser, joins up with the BLM anti-police crowd and basically says, we're just not going to get anyone young in trouble because that's the pipeline to, you know, prison. And we're just going to let loose. We're going to get these school resources officers out of schools because, heaven forbid, a kid could get a bad mark on his record. No, this this is what happens if you don't have parents. And this generation of childless kids, 70% of them born uh, with only one parent, you know, the unwed birth mom. Uh, It's a breakdown in family. It's combined with the terrible toxic culture that's going on that just does not value life, that, that values aggression and harm, that, that sees themselves as victims. So any pain they inflict, therefore, is, is okay. Uh, and just a breakdown and, and so much social order. The root mm-hmm. cause of it is not just corona. Yeah. The root cause is an ugly and uh, necessary conversation if we're ever going to get our cities back. It Thank- can't go on, but it yeah. will. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for stepping in for Rob today. Awfully nice to have you back on the show. Awesome. Thank you. You bet. Mike Hall has been my guest, senior advisor over at the Heritage Foundation. We'll be right back. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. 
You know, I love to study God's Word, and I love to study with my friend, Dr. Greg Heddington. I, I had a lovely comment that came in to the studio the other day that just said, this current teaching series on the book of John by Dr. Heddington is one of the most insightful and astute biblical studies I've heard, not just on your show, but on all of Christian radio. I thought, boy, is that a nice compliment. Wow. And Greg, I passed that on to you, and I know that made your week. So uh, nice, Nicest thing I've ever heard, actually. <laughs> so I know we're uh, continuing our study on the book of John. We're at lesson number 12, and we're moving into the, uh, John chapter 7. I can hardly wait. All right. Well, welcome to the 12th lesson of the Gospel of John as we look at chapter 7, which I entitle Feast Fight. <laughs> and our central idea is the claims of Jesus demand a response. The Jewish feast we look at today is focused around the symbols of light and water. So if you're taking notes, Roman number one, before the festival starts. So this is the first 10 verses of chapter 7. The Feast of Booths commemorated the 40 years the Jews spent in the desert. And there are two important symbols in the feast. Uh, first, there's light. The temple in Jerusalem is illuminated by these enormous candlesticks that remind people of the guiding pillar of fire by night that God led Moses and the Israelites in the desert. Now, why did they spend 40 years in the desert? Well, we know the answer to that. Even in biblical times, men did not want to stop and ask for directions. Okay, <laughs> just a little biblical humor. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it may be a little time release, a little more effective a little later, but uh, we know the truth is they continue to be disobedient, and so they continue to wander. Mm -hmm. this, the second symbol is water. Each day the priest would carry water from the Pool of Siloam in Jerusalem and pour it out from a huge golden vessel, reminding the Jews of God's provision of water that came miraculously out of the rocks in the desert. Now, this was a jubilant time for the people, but it's a difficult time for Jesus because it's the beginning of open opposition to him by the Jewish leaders who want him dead. His brothers, his actual brothers, joined the festival, but verse 6 say they did not believe in him. Now, why? Are they jealous of his popularity? We don't know, but they do try to goad him into making a public display of who he claims to be, like maybe do a miracle. I mean, they've heard about his healing miracles, but they've grown up with him, and they've had the best opportunity to see him. And you can imagine one of his brothers saying, Hey, Jesus, remember when, when I fell out of that olive tree when we were young? I don't remember you healing me. Now, the thing about miracles is they do not necessarily lead to faith for anyone. I think of my colleague back on church staff years ago who once told me, if I could just see a miracle, then I would believe. And I thought at that moment, no, you wouldn't. I mean, you would still be skeptical. But then I thought of the words of Jesus who said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now, I'm going to talk about the subject of time the Greeks had two different words for time. First, there was the ancient Greek word chronos, where we get chronology or sequential time, as in minutes, hours, and days, and so on. Second, there was the ancient Greek word kairos, which means the correct, opportune, or proper time for action. And because we know that God is sovereign over time, we sometimes refer to kairos as God's time the time God chooses to act according to his schedule, which is unpredictable because we live and we pray in our chronos time, but God acts and answers prayers in his kairos time. Now, Jesus' brothers wanted him to do something like now because they lived in chronos time, as we all do, 
But the time for Jesus to fully disclose his identity had not yet arrived. And that would be Kairos time. And as our central idea for this lesson states, the claims of Jesus demand a response. And at this point, the response by his brothers is they do not believe his claims to be Messiah. Although we do know later, his brother James will become a dynamic leader. Roman numeral 2 during the festival, and that'd be verses 11 to 36. Jesus goes to the feast and begins to teach in the temple, as he often does there. And there are three different groups involved in this public debate, which is what it becomes. The first group is the Jewish leaders who live there in Jerusalem and are connected to temple worship. This includes Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. And even they differ theologically, but yet they agree in their opposition to Jesus. The second group is the Jewish pilgrims who traveled to Jerusalem, sometimes from a long way off, to worship God during this festival. Now, they're not up to date in all the local gossip, and so in verse 20, we find that they are amazed that anyone would want to kill Jesus, who's this great miracle worker, as if he were a lawbreaker. The third group is composed of Jews living in Jerusalem who will most likely side with the religious leaders. The debate begins among the people even before Jesus arrives as to whether he's a good man or whether he's a charlatan who's deceiving the people. And then Jesus arrives and begins to teach in the temple, and the debate now focuses on his doctrine. They're amazed at his teaching and the depth of it, but his enemies claim he does not have the proper credentials. For a sports analogy, it would be like a quarterback coming off the bench throwing the touchdown only to be disqualified as an ineligible player. It seems Jesus' enemies have snooped around, who knows, maybe they've talked with the apostles, and discovered that Jesus never went to rabbinical school. So they're saying, Jesus, what about that? You didn't go to school. Well, Jesus responds basically by just saying his teaching comes from God. Now, because the Jewish leaders thought their knowledge was superior, they were unable to attain the godly wisdom and recognize Jesus, who was right in front of them, whom they claimed they'd wanted to see for centuries. T.S. Eliot, the famed British poet, once wrote, Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? The leaders had academic knowledge, but no godly wisdom, because to follow Jesus is not to be passively academic. To believe in Jesus means obedience to, and again, the word believe in Greek means to trust, commit to, put your weight down on Jesus. But they would not give up control and submit. Their flawed logic was something like this. Number one, Jesus did not go to rabbinic school, so he's not ordained as an official rabbi. Number two, they said, well, we know this man comes from Nazareth, although some believe the Messiah came from Bethlehem, like it says in Micah 5, 2. But others said, well, we don't know where the Messiah comes from. And so number three, their conclusion, Jesus cannot be a Messiah. Now, if they'd done a little Q&A with Jesus, instead of gossiping about him, he would have given them the direct answers. Like they would say, all right, Jesus, where'd you go to school? He'd say, heaven. <laughs> well, where are you from? Heaven. <laughs> well, where are you going? Heaven. I mean, they could not possibly understand our central idea that the claims of Christ demand a response. His claims require action and not endless discussion like the Jewish leaders were doing. Roman numeral three, the end of the feast. 
verses 37 to 52. The last day of the feast is a very special day in which the priest marched seven times around the altar, chanting Psalm 118, verse 25, which is, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. This is the last time in the festival in which the priest will draw water and pour it out. As they are pouring out this water, which again is the symbolic of the water that Moses drew from the rock in the desert, Jesus stands up and shouts, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is contextualizing the gossip. That's something all good missionaries try to do, which means he's fitting his message into the lives of the people so they can better understand it in their cultural uniqueness. In other words, are they thirsty? Well, yeah, most of them have been drinking wine for the past six or seven days. And when Jesus says, come to me and drink, they know it's a metaphor. I mean, they know that it's not literally water. They know how the prophet Isaiah spoke of God pouring out his spirit as a blessing on their descendants like water on a thirsty land. Check out Isaiah 44, verse 3, for one of several passages. Jesus is speaking of the Spirit that will quench their thirst forever because they would then have that living water within themselves, and they could become channels of living water to bless a thirsty world. So the people have no doubt that Jesus and the prophets use water as a metaphor for the Spirit of God. What's the result of this teaching from Jesus? Well, the same result that often occurs when the good news is presented. Some people believe a portion of what Jesus says. Some officers agree with what he says and even later tell the Sanhedrin, quote, no one ever spoke like this man. Yet, they do nothing. Others get lost in religious arguments, while still others react with hostile indignation. One thing that never changes in this life is that faith in Jesus always brings division between those who believe and those who do not believe. I often hear people talk about the importance of unity and peace, and can't we just get along? But there is no unity or peace at the expense of truth. In Matthew 10:34, Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace to this earth, but a sword. Now, in the New Testament, a sword is often used as a metaphor for the inevitable separation between those who follow Christ and those who do not, even within a family. But Christ does offer peace, love, joy, and purpose to those who follow him. And that's what all people, of course, after all, are seeking. God is sovereign over all, but he has allowed Satan temporarily to be the ruler over this fallen world until the return of Jesus, when Satan is destroyed. Check out John 12, verse 3. But in this world, there still can be kindness and courteousness, even as there is division when we respect and forgive those with whom we differ. I like the way the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12:18. He says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But Paul was also reflecting that the higher call is truth, and truth has a name, and the name is Jesus. The chapter ends in an interesting way. John describes conversations between the temple guards and the religious officers, but the Jewish leaders will not budge from their opinion that the law and tradition must be followed above all. 
And sadly, that keeps them from recognizing Messiah, who is right in front of them. Roman numeral four, persecution today in the world. In John's Gospel, we're beginning to see persecution of Jesus by religious leaders, especially because of his claims of divinity. As soon as the church first becomes established in the book of Acts, Christ's followers are also persecuted, and it's always been that way. As someone has said about the Apostle Paul, we see in the book of Acts, whenever he preached, either revival or a riot would break out, and sometimes both at the same time. Well, what are the latest statistics on persecution of believers in the world today? In the first week of November 2020, the Pew Research Center released its annual report on global religious freedom, and it was able to get the 19, uh, excuse me, 2019 stats, and they were not good. In fact, it was the highest level of persecution since Pew began its study in 2007. They looked at 189 countries and found that 40% of those countries face significant government hindrance to worshiping God freely. Those were the words. So here's a breakdown of some of the countries who face the most serious obstacles to faith, although there are many others not specifically mentioned. For example, in 40 of those countries, certain religions are formally banned. In 21 nations, apostasy is a crime. Apostasy means to disregard the established national religion. In 12 of those 21 nations, the crime of apostasy is punishable by death. The two most restrictive countries are, not surprisingly, China and Iran, but they're followed closely by Malaysia and then the Maldives, which is an island country in the Indian Ocean, and then Syria and then Russia. Now, the irony is that these two top countries, China and Syria, for persecution, continue to see people come to Christ only through the miraculous activity of the Holy Spirit. So what about us in the U.S.? Even though we live in perhaps the most tolerant country in the world for religious expression, there is still reluctance among many believers to openly affirm their faith in Christ as the only way to God and salvation. Many Americans claim that tolerance is one of the most important virtues one could express. And yet, when believers speak in absolute terms about what we believe, we often find that other people are not so tolerant of us, and we might face a subtle, or not so subtle, objection or rejection from others. But with 40% of the world facing institutional persecution, why would we think that we would be spared of conflict with those who think all religious beliefs are simply a matter of what one thinks they would like to believe according to what works best for them. I've been spending a lot of time with Chinese students over the last number of years, and especially here in Dallas, the graduate students that go to a particular university. Ostensibly, I do it to help them with their English, but ultimately I pray they will come to the Savior. Even when a Christ follower in China lives there, It is illegal for them to share their faith outside of their worship service, and many church buildings have now been bulldozed in China. Even so, the Holy Spirit continues to bring an untold number of Chinese to faith, and we know God's sovereign plan cannot be derailed by anything, including a repressive government. 
And, Bill, that brings us to number five. All right. I think this is probably a good time to take a short break. Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest. We're continuing our study in the book of John. This is lesson number 12. After a short break, we'll be right back. Welcome back. We're studying God's Word with Dr. Greg Heddington. We're in the book of John, chapter 7. We're in lesson 12. And I am loving this, Greg. Let's get back. Well, Bill, we're on uh, point number five, and this is now how do we share the gospel? There are many books and seminars on this topic, so let's just say what I think Jesus is obviously commanding us to do in Matthew 28 19. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples. Now, the Greek word therefore goes very important. It means literally, as you are going. In other words, as you're going about your daily life, share your faith, make disciples. Because when we are committed to Jesus, sharing our faith is just a clear part of the evidence that we really do, and again, there's the word believe, we really do trust, commit to, put our weight down on Jesus. Yes, we'll sometimes make some people uncomfortable when we share what we believe, that there's only one true God whom we do our best to follow because we've experienced that joy and that love and that purpose for which God created us to have from the beginning. So since we have freedom in our country to express our faith, how do we start? Well, as Jesus is suggesting the Great Commission, he says, as you go about your life, share the gospel. So in the natural progression of spending time with a person for a while, we might ask, do you ever think about spiritual things? That's an easy, it should not be, make them uncomfortable. And then you can always say, well, what are your thoughts? Now, there's many other ways to start up such a conversation. And if they ask what we believe, then we can share in a very natural sort of way. But remember, no one can discount another person's experience because you weren't there. They were there. Yet I've spoken to youth pastors from Bible-believing churches who say that few of their high school seniors are able to clearly articulate what they say they believe and experienced after years of Sunday school. Mm. So here's five statistics from very recent extensive surveys about what's going on. Number one, 56% of churchgoers say they pray for opportunities to share their faith. But in the last month, they say less than 10% had a conversation about the Lord of anyone. Second, 74% of believers, quote, seldom have a spiritual conversation with anyone. Number three, 50% of believers assume that most non-believers have no interest in hearing about Jesus. However, number four, 78% of these unchurched people say they would listen to someone who shared what they believed about Christianity. And probably that's especially true because now number five, 35 million Americans who, quote, seldom pray or darken the door of the church have started praying during the coronavirus epidemic. Now, remember, it's not up to us to change anyone's heart. The claims of Jesus demand a response, and our obligation is simply to take the risk and share the good news and let the Holy Spirit change their heart. Now, I've found that when I share even briefly about the gospel, I typically just respect the response of indifference or that glazed-over look in their eyes like they're looking at the forest. Because this is often the first time that person has had such a direct conversation about Jesus. They may be open, but not yet ready to make the change. However, that conversation might pique their interest in exploring it deeper. After all, God operates, again, in what time? Kairos time, 
even as we continue to operate on what? Chronos time, so we don't give up. Keep praying and sharing. Remember, the message of the gospel is supernatural. So after the words are out of our mouth, it's up to the Holy Spirit to do its work, and it's time. By the way, I do follow up with the person I speak to, and it's always important for us to do. Also, I never expect a pat on the back from from anyone by the way I live or what I believe. As the British pastor Charles Spurgeon once said, it is a very ill omen to hear a wicked world clap its hands and shout, well done, to the follower of Christ. In other words, if we're living and speaking and behaving as Jesus would have us live, then it's not likely we will be receiving a pat on the back and an attaboy for our godly choices. We share our faith by living it, even though verbalizing it is often uncomfortable, and that's why faith is spelled R-I-S-K. But that risk is worth the effort, and the uncomfortable curling of our toes when the Holy Spirit might turn the light of truth for someone. God doesn't need us to do his work, but he allows us to be his hands and his feet. It's not about our ability. It's about our availability. So in conclusion, when we share our faith, we might feel discomfort briefly because we do not always feel qualified to represent the Lord. But God does not necessarily call the qualified to do his work. He qualifies the called, and he equips them to do what they need. And when he qualifies us, we step out in faith under his power, believing he will meet us as we go, as we go about our daily life, seeking to make a difference. And when we feel uncomfortable stepping out in faith, taking that risk to live for him, we remember that it is nothing compared to the 40% of the world's countries that face significant government hindrance to freely worshiping. We step out because we know the claims of Christ demand a response. So here's the final question for us. Do we live the kind of life which is different enough from the way others live so that if we were brought to trial, there would be enough evidence hmm. to convict us of being a follower of Christ? Oh, wow. Greg, if you don't mind, I've got a couple of questions running around in my head. Um, can you say just a little bit more about why the Jews had such a difficult time accepting the good news that Jesus was preaching? Yes. You know, there's the Old Testament Jewish law, basically, versus the Spirit of God. And here's some thoughts about that. The Pharisees determined that there were 613 commandments in the full Jewish law that must be kept in order to please God, plus even more laws based on the oral traditions which interpreted scriptural passages. So you can see why ordinary, sincere uh, Jewish people, like the crowd that followed Jesus, who travel all the way to Jerusalem on feast days to worship, might feel like giving up in their attempts to follow the letter of the law. And because of the cross, we know today that we can repent and receive God's forgiveness and grace and the Holy Spirit as believers, instead of attempting to earn our salvation by struggling to perfectly follow the law. I like the way the Apostle Paul says it. In 2 Corinthians 3, 6, he says, The letter of the law kills, which means, in other words, without the Spirit of God within us, we have no power to even attempt to follow it. And our sinful condition brings us under judgment because our hearts are usually far from God. 
So Paul is saying, if you try to follow the law without the Spirit of God empowering you, then forget about it. And then Paul says, this is the best part, the Spirit gives life. And that's referring to the abundant life now in Christ and continuing within us into eternity. Now, that's good news. But let us be sure that it's our godly lifestyle and belief that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And by that, showing the love that we reflect to others that we might cause, not cause division with nonbelievers rather than being offensive in our behavior. We want to draw people by our love for others, in other words. Mm-hmm. So that's a few thoughts, Bill. I love that. Greg, I always enjoy this time together. I know my listeners are uh, are loving this study. And uh, next time we connect, uh, um, we'll, we'll continue the study and, and uh, look forward to it. I look forward to it, too, Bill. Thank you so much. Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest, my good friend. As we continue to study the book of John, I eventually assume we'll put all these together on a, a page you can you can uh, binge study at some time. So uh, that wraps up our show for the day and the week. Thank you so much, and I just love having this time together. Have a great night, everyone. See you soon. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.